Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. to a special end-of-the-year episode of Most Notorious. So pleased to have as my guest today Rich Gold, co-author along with Brendan DeLapp of Mad Dog Cole, an Irish gangster. This is a book that tells the story of one of the most feared and cold-blooded gangsters in New York history. So glad you could join me today. Thanks for having me, Eric. Um... Uh, I always enjoy talking about uh, the book, talking about Mad Dog Cole, and just talking about true crime stories in general. Uh, I find them fascinating. Yes, so do I. Let's start with how you got involved in this book. An earlier edition had already been published, correct? Yes. I was initially working on a documentary film called In the Footsteps of Mad Dog Cole, which I'm now in the process of completing. It should be done by the end of the year, and it will go through the film festival circuit. And one of my sources of information was Brandon DeLapp's initial book that he wrote back in the late 1990s. And I was very impressed with the thorough research Brandon did. So we communicated. One thing led to another, and we decided to do a revised version of the book, Mad Dog Cole, an Irish Gangster, as I was able to find through my research some additional information that wasn't included in the initial version of the book. And we very worked on it, and we were very pleased with uh, the outcome. Brendan lives in Ireland, right? So you're communicating across the Atlantic. Yes, Brandon lives in Ireland, And it was very impressive how someone from across the Atlantic was able to find all this interesting information and details about uh, Vincent Mad Dog Cole. And in our communications, one thing led to another, 
and we decided to co-author a revised version of the book combining the new information that I was able to gather through my research. So let's just jump into the life of Vincent Mad Dog Cole. Uh, Vincent Cole had one of the most messed up childhoods of any criminal this podcast has ever released an episode about. (laughs) Uh, Give us the rundown on Cole's upbringing or lack of one, (laughs) if you don't mind. Yeah, he had a tough life, a tough childhood and grew up on the streets very quickly. He spent a lot of his childhood in uh, institutions for children. He was born in 1908. His family came over from Ireland with him and his brothers and sister. They came over here in 1909. His father left the family. His mother passed away when he was very young, I think around 1914 or so. The family moved to the hub section of the Bronx, which was a tough area. And uh, it was sort of the area where local hoodlums would have the youngsters in the neighborhood running little errands for them, Uh, you know, type of things you see in the movie, uh, breaking windows when they're looking to shake down uh, store owners, lighting uh, newsstands on fire if someone wasn't paying their uh, so-called protection money. So this is how these kids grew up, and Vincent Cole grew up this way. In 1920, he was uh, committed to the mission of the Immaculate Virgin as a disorderly child. That was located in uh, Staten Island. The building is still there. And when he got out, he was uh, looked after by his older sister, Florence, who was married. And his brother, Peter, was also living with him. Peter was about a year older than Vincent. And they were still getting in trouble. He got arrested again in 1924 for juvenile delinquency, and he was placed on probation. But a few months later, he got arrested again, living in the Bronx, for possession of a handgun. And he was sent to the House of Refuge, which uh, in New York City was on Randall's Island. Randall's Island today is uh, just built up. They have uh, a stadium there and events. But back then, it was... uh, sort of the, it was called the bad boy's home. (laughs) Later on, he was transferred to Elmira Penitentiary, which is where he uh, came in contact with really hardened criminals and uh, hardened prison guards. When he was in prison, he was abused quite a bit. So he had a rough time there. He was eventually paroled. And when he got out of uh, prison uh, from Elmira, He eventually came in contact with Dutch Schultz and started on on to bigger things. He had a number of siblings, and a few of them died pretty tragically, right? Yes. uh, In Ireland, there were at least two siblings, older siblings, that died over there during the rough times. And when they came over, he came over with his with three older brothers, one being Peter, um, the other two, one was named Thomas, and I can't remember the third brother, and his sister Florence. The two brothers, they passed away 
one I think in 1919 and one the following year. And just uh, back then, they didn't have really the medical care for the diseases that were going around. And his two brothers uh, passed away at very young ages. And it was just uh, Vincent and Peter, a year apart, and the older sister, who was maybe ooh, about 10, 11 years older than they were, looked after them. Do you know how he and Dutch Schultz met? Don't know exactly how they met. There are, there are a few stories. There's one story where I don't have any verification of this. Uh, a lot of times uh, someone will write a story or tell a story about an old-time gangster or a modern-day gangster that becomes a classic story that someone would dramatize in a movie. Uh, the story that was told of how Cole met with Dutch Schultz was he went into a club, was uh, trying to steal away Schultz's, uh, one of his lady friends, and Schultz's right-hand man was Abe Bo Weinberg. And he sent Bo Weinberg over to uh, teach this young guy a lesson. And uh, Cole just socked him a few times, knocked him out, and that impressed Schultz. Personally, I don't believe that story. <laughs> it just sounds so much like something someone made up just for dramatization. But uh, what happens, my belief is, in that section of the Bronx, just like other neighborhoods in New York City back in those days, the local hoodlums were always on the lookout for young talent in their world. And Cole was uh, very impressive to uh, these local hoods because he was somewhat fearless. And that was a key. So he would do little jobs He had for them. He would have his own gang and uh, I think that's how, in my opinion, I believe that's how Schultz uh, noticed him first and got him to do some work for him. Do you think Cole was a sociopath? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Cole is definitely considered by journalists, criminologists, and anyone that has read his history as a typical sociopath. Uh, also, he was not afraid to die. He was, he was not afraid to risk his life and to risk his own uh, freedom or safety to get what he wanted. And that's the makings of a, uh, a very dangerous individual. Part of the mythology of Mad Dog Cole is, is similar in a, in a sense to John Dillinger. Despite living a life surrounded by violence, he was and is perhaps even still now, uh, considered kind of a romantic figure, partly because of how he presented himself. Could you talk about how he looked and how he dressed? Vincent Cole was a good-looking guy back then. He also, uh, when he started making money, he was a sharp dresser. There's not much history on his relationships with women prior to Lottie Kreisberg, who uh, basically was his gun mall, but she was considered a uh, an attractive woman, and he was a, he was a sharp he was a sharp guy. He walked around with that swagger, and uh, as did his members of his gang. Vincent Cole enjoyed playing the role of the gangster. It seemed pretty important 
to him to present himself very fashionably. This was the big uh, attraction to the neighborhood kids. They saw these gangsters walking around with the, uh, the sharp shoes and the sharp suits and the hat and getting their manicures and their haircuts at the barber shop and walking around with wads of money. And that was very attractive to these young up-and-coming hoods in the neighborhoods. And Vincent Cole was very attracted to that. And he was shooting for the stars. When he was working for Dutch Schultz, he saw how much money Schultz was making. And he just said to himself, I could do it. I don't need Schultz. So Dutch Schultz was a powerful figure in the New York underworld during this time. And you've just mentioned Cole's attraction to Schultz's wealth. What were the the businesses Schultz dabbled in and, and what territories did he control? Dutch Schultz, back in the Prohibition era, was considered the beer baron of the Bronx. His business was just bootlegging liquor, especially beer. And he had his he had a ga- a large gang. They uh, transported the liquor. They distributed the liquor to local uh, speakeasies. And um, if people didn't buy from him, they uh, were encouraged, so to speak, in uh, some not so subtle manners to purchase from Schultz uh, or else. And these enforcers were very convincing to get these speakeasy owners to buy the merchandise from Dutch Schultz. Vincent Cole started off as one of Schultz's enforcers and became one of his main enforcers by the time, by the late 1920s. When he started working for Dutch Schultz, he was, he was in his late teens. Vincent Cole was not, not even 20 years old when he started working for Dutch Schultz, but he was already building up quite a reputation as uh, a feared enforcer and a force to be reckoned with in the, that world. What did Cole do for Dutch Schultz as an enforcer? Basically, he was assigned by Schultz to rough up anyone that wasn't that was a competitor of Schultz. I don't have any record of any actual murders that he committed while working for Schultz. But uh, there were some accounts of where he uh, roughed up uh, some competitors, giving them severe beatings. But as far as uh, actual murders committed by Cole, it wasn't until he decided to go up against Schultz. Can you tell the story of Cole's connection to Carmine Borelli and, and how it led to his breakup with Schultz? There's a, the story behind that was one of his uh, friends that he grew up with was a fellow by the name of Carmine Borelli. And Borelli also, he was a typical youngster who grew up in the neighborhood and Borelli enjoyed flashing around the dough. He was hanging out at the dance halls, picking up dance hall girls. And one of the turning points that fed into the Schultz 
coal feud was when Carmine Borelli and Vincent Cole uh, pulled a heist uh, holding up the Sheffield Farms plant in the Bronx where they uh, robbed the payroll. And Cole was figuring on just splitting the cash with Borelli. But somehow Dutch Schultz found out about it and demanded a cut. It wasn't work he was doing for Schultz at the time, and they had a disagreement there. And I believe it was at that time that Cole decided, uh, I don't need to work for this guy anymore. Was there anything else that, that furthered the rift between the two? Basically, that was the one thing that led to, uh, I guess, a series of events where uh, Cole was operate, started working behind Schultz's back, gathering some of his closest allies in that crew to say, listen, we don't need Schultz. Let's go off on our own and we'll take our own territory. Borelli, who was friends at the time with Cole, wasn't going along with the program. And since Cole feared that Borelli was going to rat him out to Schultz, he decided to whack Carmine Borelli. This happened in the upper section of Manhattan, and Borelli was coming home with uh, his girlfriend at the time, a dancer, and Cole shot Borelli and his girlfriend, a young lady by the name of uh, Mamie Layton. Cole was eventually charged with that murder, but there was no proof, and he got off. One of the other factors that led to the falling out between Schultz and Cole was where he was held on uh, $10,000 bail for a violation of the Sullivan Law. He was in possession of a handgun illegally. And the bail was posted by uh, Dutch Schultz, and Cole jumped bail uh, a few months afterwards. So uh, at that point, the relationship between Vincent Cole and Dutch Schultz was splintered. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Back again to the interview. So Cole goes out on his own, and he forms his own gang at this point. Yeah. At that point, Vincent Cole, along with his brother Peter, and a few other associates, jump ship from Dutch Schultz's crew, formed their own mob, and started muscling in on Dutch Schultz's territory. In early 1931 is when the uh, street war erupted between Vincent Cole and Dutch Schultz, and the streets were just a, uh, a shooting gallery. So who sheds first blood in this gang war between Cole and Schultz? It ends up being kind of a back and forth between the two after that too, right? Yes, it was back and forth. And sometimes it was a little confusing as to who was uh, the loyalty of the victims, who they were loyal to. I'll give you some examples in a bit. But uh, Carmine Borelli was sort of the first casualty that just kicked things off between Schultz and Cole. And the, the fact that Cole jumped bail that uh, Schultz posted. But what happened was, in early 1931, Vincent Cole and his mob were moving in on Schultz's territory. They were just 
hijacking uh, Schultz's loads. They were uh, selling their products to the speakeasies and forcing the owners to buy it from them instead of Schultz. And Schultz was uh, Schultz, Schultz drew first blood in around May 1931. There was a club that uh, Cole had an interest in. It was uh, called the Mad Dot Boat Club. It was up in the Inwood section in Upper Manhattan. And a couple of gunmen drove past there and saw someone exiting the uh, club that resembled Vincent Cole, and they just started firing bullets at him and shot him down. But it turned out the victim was a fellow by the name of Roy Herbert Sloan, uh, who was a Columbia University graduate. And it was a case of mistaken identity. And it was also speculated that uh, Sloan was somewhat associated with the Cole mob, but there's no proof of that. A couple of weeks following the shooting of Roy Herbert Sloan, Vincent Cole started gunning for a associate of Dutch Schultz by the name of Joey Rayo. Joey Rayo was a major player in East Harlem, and Cole was gunning for Joey Rayo, and he was exiting a restaurant on 116th Street. They did a drive-by shooting, but Rayo slipped away, Instead, they got two of Joey Rayo's associates, uh, a Dominic Bologna and a Frank Amato. But uh, Joey Rayo, he escaped with minor uh, injuries. That was the retaliation of uh, Vincent Cole, and things escalated from there. And Mad Dog Cole's brother, Peter, gets hit. Yeah. At this point, you know, it was, uh, you know... it was, um, you know, you shoot, you shoot my guys, I'm shooting your guys. But what really put Vincent Cole over the edge was a couple of days following his assassination of two of uh, Schultz's associates, Schultz's guys fired away at Vincent's brother, Peter, who was rushed to a hospital and pronounced dead right then and there. That put Vincent Cole over the edge, and from there on in, he wanted one thing. He wanted Dutch Schultz dead. Where was Peter when he was killed? He was driving, he was driving his car in, uh, in Harlem, somewhere in, not far from Central Park, and uh, a car was tailing him, and they just pulled up next to him and just blew him away. So... There is another player in this gangland battle, a man named Oni Madden. Can you talk about him and his involvement in all of this? Sure. Yeah, I'm not a uh, historian on Oni Madden, but I could give you a little uh, general background. Oni Madden grew up in the uh, Hell's Kitchen area of Manhattan, and he was a he was in a tough gang called the uh, Gopher Gang. He was arrested for mur- a murder charge and uh, did some time in Sing Sing. He got out and he profited greatly from the uh, Prohibition era. He had a uh, I guess it was a distillery or um, he had a warehouse which he used for distribution in the uh, 
on the west side of Manhattan. I think it was uh, around uh, West 14th Street, West 15th Street in that area. He had a, a big warehouse that was at one point and it got raided, but he had this underground passageway to a building across the street where they were able to still operate and just uh, pass things from the warehouse to the other building and uh, stay in business. Uh, I think the I think the uh, company was called that he was running was called the Phoenix Serial Company. That was the front name of the company he had, but they were that was his uh, distribution. Only was involved in the nightclub business back in the, the early 1920s. Only Madden purchased a nightclub that was run by former heavyweight boxing champion uh, Jack Johnson, and it became the famous uh, Cotton Club. Oni Madden was the owner of the Cotton Club. The Cotton Club was famous for their entertainment. Uh, like many clubs in Harlem in that, at that time, they had uh, very talented African-American entertainers, but they would not serve African-American patrons. It was an all-Caucasian audience, but the entertainers were African-American. Duke Ellington worked there. Cab Calloway worked there. So they had some pretty uh, strong talent there. And a lot. And uh, Oni Madden, also in addition to owning that as a club, he would also supply it with the legal liquor. What was Madden's connection to Vincent Cole? When... The heat was on Vincent Cole, and he had to leave. Uh, th th things were getting very hot for Vincent Cole at the beginning of the summer of 1931. And he decided to uh, take his act upstate New York and hole up there. When he went upstate New York, a connection was made with another uh, bootlegging legend, uh, Legs Diamond, Jack Legs Diamond. Diamond was kind of muscled out of uh, Manhattan to some extent. And actually, Legs Diamond was an enemy of Dutch Schultz also. So when Cole moved his operations, he was in the process of forming an alliance with Legs Diamond to move in on Dutch Schultz's territory in a big way and uh, bringing in the uh, illegal liquor from Canada with the trucking routes that uh, Legs Diamond had already established up there. And before that came into fruition, Cole, while I doubt this was his own uh, brainstorm, Cole turned to another method to make a few dollars by kidnapping other gangsters and holding them for ransom, he was able to make some profit there and without any risk of the, from the authorities because these other gangsters that were paying the ransom, they, didn't, they weren't about to report it to the authorities. So he, would get, so he got away with that. And the way, the way Cole crossed paths with Oni Madden was by way of his first victim, which was Oni's right-hand man, 
uh, Frenchie Demange, who was also the co-owner of the Cotton Club. They lured Frenchie out of one of another one of his clubs in Midtown Manhattan, and Cole just pulled up in one car, had some of his associates in another car, and they just grabbed Frenchie Demange, called Oni Madden, and demanded uh, ransom money, and it was paid. So he made at that point he made an enemy of Oni Madden. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. From Fort Sumter to the Battle of Gettysburg. From the Emancipation Proclamation to Appomattox Courthouse. From the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Compromise of 1877. From Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. To Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. And we're the hosts of a podcast that takes a deep dive into that era when a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. So let's get to the incident that 
Cole has gone down in history for. <laughs> okay. All right. At the end of July in 1931, right? Right. So during this time, he's up in he's upstate New York, but he was going back into Manhattan, making quick attacks, surprise attacks on Schultz and his associates and his operations. His main thing, he was gunning for Dutch Schultz. Dutch Schultz, who was, uh, he was a tough guy in, in his own regard. Schultz was so threatened by Cole and the violent nature of his revenge towards Schultz that he, he hid out in his apartment on Park Avenue in uh, Upper Manhattan. But Schultz's associate, Joey Rayo, was another major target of coal. Joey Rayo slipped away at least once, one time that we know of from uh, Cole's bullets. And on a summer afternoon in East Harlem, on July 28th in 1931, Cole was making another attempt on Joey Rayo. Uh, Joey Rayo hung out in the social club on East 107th Street. And they determined the time that he would be there. They drove by, they saw some of uh, Rayo's mob in front of the place, and they just started firing away with no regard to the fact that there were children playing in the streets. And after the gunfire stopped, the car drove away. Some children were shot, were hit with bullets. One little boy who was five years old, a Michael Vengali, he was rushed to the hospital and pronounced dead. So at that point, no one knew who the shooters were. But the mayor of New York, Mayor Jimmy Walker, and the police commissioner, and the whole city of New York was in an outrage. There was such determination to find, capture, and punish these shooters because when gangsters were shooting each other, it wasn't really a big deal. It was more, I mean, people saw that as, uh, okay, this is the era, this is happening, let them shoot each other. But to fire bullets in the middle of a street where there's children playing and one dies, someone's got to pay for that. And there has to be a stop put to all this. So eventually, Cole was identified as one of the shooters. And, and he became, that's where the newspapers gave him the name Mad Dog Cole. The police at this point are pretty eager to bring Cole in, but Cole isn't interested in battling it out with law enforcement. He hides instead. Isn't that right? Yeah. While he was hanging out, he was hiding out upstate New York in the uh, Green County area by the uh, town of Cairo, Catskill, around that area. And after that shooting, he just went back up north, back up to the Catskills. But he, whereas before he was making, making trips into the city for these surprise attacks on Schultz and anyone connected with Schultz, he was staying put up there. He changed his appearance. He grew a mustache. He uh, wore glasses. He dyed his hair. He, he was laying low for the, for the time being. But he was, at that point, his picture was posted everywhere. 
he was the most hunted man in the country at that time. So he's eventually caught, arrested at a Manhattan hotel, and he surrenders peacefully. Yeah. I'll, I'll take you through the, um, the chain of events of what led to his capture, which is pretty interesting. And, you know, what you just mentioned is he just basically gave up. After a while, he was going in and out of Manhattan. He was staying at a hotel called the Cornish Arms, which was on West 23rd Street under an alias, and traveling back and forth between there and upstate New York. He basically threw caution to the wind because in early October of 1931, he wanted to take up again his attack on Schultz, and he wasn't going to get, he wasn't going to rest until Schultz was laying on a slab in the morgue. So a couple of his uh, uh, associates, uh, a Frank Giordano and Dominic, uh, nicknamed Tuffy Odierno, went after one of Schultz's uh, beer drops, which was in the Bronx. They drove up there. Now these guys weren't wanted. So they were able to pretty much run around. So Odierno and Giordano, they drove up to Schultz's beer drop. They saw one of Schultz's main guys outside there who was, uh, you know, at that warehouse distributor uh, drop, Joe Mullins, and pumped some bullets into him, got into the car, drove off. It turned out, though, that there were two um, Edison Company workers that were doing some repairs on the street, and they saw the car driving by and got the license plate number. So what happened was, a few days afterwards, there was a whole chain of events that led to the capture of Vincent Cole. One of Cole's guys, who was a fellow by the name of Jimmy DeLuccia, was assigned to pick up the car that was used in the shooting, which was parked in a uh, parking garage, and get rid of it. So when he went there, cops arrested him because they saw the car, they saw the plates, they were on the lookout for these, this license, and a, an alert patrolman noticed it. And DeLuccia, they found in his pocket information of where other members of the mob were staying. First, um, in one uh, hotel, there were two of the uh, members. From there, they found out where uh, Frank Giordano was staying. And when they uh, got Frank Giordano in his hotel room, they found uh, a supply of guns, including what was determined was the gun that was used in the shooting of Joe Mullins. So from Giordano, they were able to follow the trail to where Vincent Cole was staying, and that was at the Cornish Arms Apartments, I'm sorry, the Cornish Arms Hotel on West 23rd Street. The detectives went up there. Cole was walking down the hallway with Odierno, and uh, he saw the detectives. At first, Odierno, who was uh, quick on the draw, was ready to go after the, whoever they were. But uh, Cole said, hold on, it's the, you know, it's the cops. Uh, Odierno thought it was probably Schultz's guys. But uh, when Cole knew it was the cops, he says, nope, it's just the cops. And 
basically let them take him in. You know, he didn't admit to anything, but he was charged. The district attorney claimed that he had an eyewitness who could identify Vincent Cole and Frank Giordano as the shooters in the East Harlem massacre, which resulted in the death of a five-year-old boy. Another quick break now to pay the electric bill. Let's go back again to the interview. All of the prosecution's hopes for a guilty verdict are dependent on this witness to the shooting. Right. One eyewitness. That, uh, the police had this eyewitness under wraps. They had him in a hotel. They were paying his expenses, his meals, taking him to uh, Broadway shows. They kept his identity hidden from the public. But um, also interesting was that Frank Giordano and Tuffy Odierno were being charged in the Bronx for the shooting and murder of Joe Mullins, which was uh, Dutch Schultz's uh, associate who was gunned down at the beer drop. So Giordano was up for murder in the Bronx with Tuffy Odierno, and he was also up for another murder trial of the murder of Michael Van Galley in Manhattan, along with Vincent Cole. So the trial in the Bronx for the Joe Mullins murder was held first. And uh, Giordano was kind of cooked on that one because they found the murder weapon. They found a, a phony name he used on a title where he purchased that vehicle. They had matched his handwriting with that. And the uh, utility workers that were in the, on the scene there, they were able to identify both Giordano and Odierno as the two uh, shooters. Actually, Odierno was the one who was the shooter, and Giordano was uh, the accomplice who was driving the car. So they were identified by two, two eyewitnesses, the utility company workers. Odierno had an alibi. Uh, he claimed that he was uh, upstate New York and did not come down to New York City until the day of or after the shooting of Joe Mullins. However, that was disproved because when Cole was arrested, they found in Cole's pocket some receipts for a New York Railroad train that they were on coming from upstate New York the day before Mullins was shot. And the porter on the train was uh, questioned and was able to identify Odierno as a passenger with Cole on that train. So Odierno's alibi at the time didn't hold, uh, didn't hold ground. So Odierno and Giordano were convicted of murder in the first degree, and they were sentenced to the death penalty. So interestingly now, after that trial, Giordano had to go back into Manhattan, even though he was sentenced to the death penalty already, he was going to die, what more could they do? He was on trial with Cole for the murder in East Harlem. Okay, and he probably didn't care much at this point. 
he he was already the Walking Dead, right? Yeah, it, he was uh, he was cooked on the death penalty there. However, if you really think about it, he did not pull the trigger. It was Odierno that was the one that shot Joe Mullins, but uh, Frank Giordano was just driving the car. But he did get the death penalty. What about Mad Dog Cole? How do things end up for him? The best move that Cole made was in his selection of a defense attorney. Cole hired as his defense attorney a legendary lawyer by the name of Sam Leibowitz. Sam Leibowitz defended Al Capone on a murder charge and got him off. He was just a brilliant, brilliant criminal defense attorney who later on in life went to the other side and became a judge, a very hard judge who uh, handed out stiff penalties to uh, criminals. But he defended Cole, and the eyewitness went on the stand, told his story, and he identified Cole as definitely the shooter. But this is where... This is where the price you pay for a top criminal defense attorney, when, if you're ever in that situation, is money well spent. The experience of Sam Leibowitz was what saved Cole. The witness, the eyewitness, was a fellow by the name of George Breck, who was in New York, uh, evidently moved to New York to find work and was doing odds and ends work. He was originally in St. Louis, and some of the questions that uh, were asked of uh, the witness were, was he ever in jail? Was he ever arrested? Did he ever testify in a, uh, in a murder trial? And Brecht answered no to all these, but Leibowitz noticed that Brecht spoke sort of like um, out of the side of his mouth at times which uh, he equated to a convict, an inmate, in a prison yard where they would just try to talk without moving their lips so that uh, the tower guards or the yard guards wouldn't uh, see them talking when they're not allowed to talk. And it got him thinking. And as luck would have it, it was discovered that Brecht was arrested and in prison for crimes committed in St. Louis, and he also testified in a murder trial there and was found to have committed perjury there. So with this, Brett's testimony was completely discredited, and the district attorney was embarrassed, and they just had to let Cole, and Cole go free, and uh, Giordano, proven not guilty, of the of the murder in East Harlem, but he still had to go back to uh, Sing Sing because he was sentenced to death for the murder of Joe Mullins. But Cole was free. Cole was a free man. So the end is near for Cole. He doesn't flee town. He stays knee-deep in all of this, and it's still prohibition, so there is still a lot of money to be made. What is his next scheme? Uh, what does he get involved in next? Well, first of all, he, he was walking boldly around New York City. The only thing he 
that he um, had to worry about. He couldn't walk around and carry a gun because the police were embarrassed. The NYPD, New York City Police Department, was embarrassed by this whole fiasco. And they just weren't going to leave Cole alone. They just uh, followed him everywhere. If he jaywalked, they were going to take him. Uh, so he couldn't carry a gun because that would be a violation of the Sullivan Law, and they'd get him on that. But there was still a war with Schultz. He wanted Schultz dead. Schultz wanted him dead. Schultz's gunmen were tracking the movements of Vincent Cole. They knew that he was periodically seen in an apartment that was uh, rented by a couple of uh, Cole's men. So they went in there to gun down Cole. They just busted right in. There were there was a room full of people. Two of Cole's men got killed, Patsy Del Greco and Fiore Basili. They were shot dead. A couple of people were injured. And an innocent woman was shot dead also. But Cole was not there. He was going to be there later, but I would imagine when he saw uh, the police cars all around the place, he just decided to move on and, and not see what happened there, but would find out. So at that point, Cole probably knew that you know, his days were numbered. But that didn't stop him. He needed money. He was uh, basically stymied from doing anything in Manhattan. So he went back to a method that worked for him in the past and made him some money, and that was kidnapping other gangsters and demanding ransom. So he called up Oni Madden, and he threatened to kidnap Oni Madden's brother-in-law, and that he couldn't be stopped from doing that unless Oni paid him X amount of dollars. Oni was already part of the uh, plot to take Cole out. They had enough of Cole. They wanted him dead. Uh, and they had the bigger guns. So Oni decided to just uh, kind of put him off a little bit, saying, okay, I got to put together the money and uh, just give me X amount of time and I'll have it for you. Now, the interesting part, Cole was back again staying at the same place where he got captured some months earlier, the Cornish Arms Hotel on West 23rd Street. And on February 8th, he was with his bodyguard. And this individual's identity is not known to this day. Uh, there is speculation as to who it could have been, but there's nothing uh, concrete as to who his bodyguard was, who was, who was with him the night he got killed. He went into a drugstore across the street from the Cornish Arms called the London Chemists. And back then, drugstores weren't just drugstores. They had a counter. They had these counters where they it was sort of like a, a soda fountain as well. So they went in there. He went into one phone booth call, and his bodyguard went into a set, the next phone booth. The bodyguard was in there maybe 20 seconds or so, 30 seconds, less than a minute, got out, and then sat at the soda fountain counter. Cole stayed on the phone for a while. Some people say they believe that 
Cole might have been on the phone with only Madden, you know, asking where his money is. But uh, that's again, that's speculation. <laughs> uh, I haven't seen any source that said yes, he was on the phone with only Madden. But shortly thereafter, a car pulled up in front of the um, London chemists. Three men got out. Two stood guard out front. Another man walked into the uh, drugstore. When he walked in, he uh, motioned to the bodyguard sitting at the counter who walked out of there and just disappeared into the night. The man pulled out a machine gun, told the customers that were sitting at the counter and the counter man, who actually I think was the uh, druggist, pharmacist, just to keep quiet, no one will get hurt. And they just started uh, pumping bullets into the phone booth where Cole was, and Cole was dead. And they just drove off. The three men, he went left. The two men standing guard jumped in the car, and they drove down uh, 23rd Street, made a left turn on 8th Avenue. And it so happened a patrolman heard the shots and saw the men running out. He just... Uh, grabbed the taxi cab and made the taxi driver just uh, follow the car, chase after. So it was a car chase going down 8th Avenue, but the uh, gunman got away. And we don't know what happened to his bodyguard. It's a mystery who that bodyguard was, but it seems very likely. It, it, everything points in the direction that that bodyguard went into the phone booth made a quick phone call to someone, said, here's where Cole is, and hung up, sat there, and just waited, and whoever Cole was on the phone with was keeping him on the phone, and when the gunman came in, the bodyguard probably just verified that Cole was in that phone booth, was allowed to walk away, left, and uh, mission accomplished. Who accomplished the mission, do you think? <laughs> do, do you think it was Oni Madden, Dutch Schultz? Um, I think it was Madden behind it. Uh, it was like whoever got him first. It was joint effort. But um, if you know, Madden probably just said, okay, hey, I got him on the phone. He kept him on the phone. Someone else maybe wrote a note to someone uh, saying, oh, he gave the address, Cole, in phone booth, and uh, sent his guys out there. And Schultz probably found out shortly thereafter. They probably had a few beers celebrating. And no one was ever arrested for killing Cole. No one has ever been arrested for the uh, murder of Vincent Cole. Did the police ever round up any suspects? Did they ever follow up? No, I they were I'm guessing that they really uh their hearts were in, in uh, identify I think they were uh more pleased that this uh public enemy was uh finally out of their hair but there are, there really aren't any records that I was able to find on any investigation so I'm guessing it, there wasn't a thorough investigation they just uh didn't have their hearts in it could you tell the story of Dutch Schultz's demise? Okay. In 1930, October 1935, Schultz actually got gunned down himself. 
Uh, he was at the Palace Chop House in uh, Newark, New Jersey, when uh, three men pulled up in a car and uh, two gunmen came in and they just uh, shot him down. In 1935, when Schultz got killed, Prohibition, the, the uh, Volstead Act was repealed a couple of years by now. And Schultz started muscling in on the Harlem numbers racket, which was more or less run by uh, you know, African-American interests. One of the biggest numbers operators there was a, actually a woman named Stephanie St. Clair. When Schultz started moving in on the numbers games in Harlem, most of the operators caved in and Schultz took over, but Stephanie St. Clair did not. She uh, posed Schultz, but eventually he won and got her operation. When Stephanie St. Clair was running the numbers racket as Schultz was trying to muscle in, her main enforcer was Bumpy Johnson, who uh, gained a lot of prominence over the years. Uh, Bumpy Johnson he was a major player in Harlem, and he worked well with the uh, Italian mobs that were also operating the area in other rackets. When Schultz was gunned down, he didn't die right away. He, he was in the hospital for about a day, and he received a telegram from Stephanie St. Clair quoting a Bible passage that said, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. So in that sense, uh, she basically uh, got some satisfaction uh, telling Dutch Schultz more or less that, uh, okay, you're dying, you're going to die, I'm living. <laughs> you, know, you hear about how the, um, the Italian mob, they were eventually worked together. They had... Uh, the commission, the five families, the New York syndicate. But then you had, uh, you know, some of these loose cannons. And Schultz was a loose cannon. People wanted him dead. Even after uh, Cole was gone, there were still enemies he had. So for people who want to learn more about you and your work, your book, where can we direct them? Uh, the book is available it's uh, published by Huntington Press out of Las Vegas. They specialize in uh, Las Vegas and gaming uh, books. They do b true crime biographies. I was very pleased with how they published this uh, work. Uh, they did a really nice job, I think. I'm very happy with it. I, my communications with Brandon, he's very happy. And uh, you could order it from Huntington Press directly. I think it's on, I'm sure it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's in some bookstores, and if it's not, they'll order it. I'm very happy with the book. I think between Brandon, uh, who did the uh, lion's share of the work uh, that came from his previous, re previous version, and I believe I added some value to it, people that read it have enjoyed it. They found it very uh, interesting. I had a great time doing the research and writing it, adding to Brandon's work. I found uh, Cole fascinating, that whole era fascinating. And I put together a website. It's called maddogcole.com. I have some photographs 
of uh, you know, members of the uh, of the mob, photographs of some of the victims uh, of the street war, and some interesting little tidbits uh, over there that uh, adds to the uh, information that's already in the book. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, putting uh, faces to the names, so to speak. Well, great. Thanks again for your time. You got it. Thank you for having me on. I've been chatting with Rich Gold, author, along with Brendan Delap, of the book Mad Dog Cole, an Irish Gangster. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.